Good morning again. We, uh, we launch a new sermon series today in the Gospel of John called That You May Believe. And I'm, I'm hoping it's an appropriate response to Christmas. Uh, you know, of course, as we've been saying the last few weeks, Christmas sets before us this claim that, um, that is historical in, in nature. And uh, from that Sunday after Christmas, when we looked at the genealogy of Jesus, you know, if, if you think about that really, those are the very first words of the entire New Testament. The entire New Testament, the entire written testimony about the new covenant God has made with people starts with these words. This is the genealogy of Jesus. Well, there it is. You know, there's a reason that it starts there. You know, from the, from the get-go, it's clear that these claims, the claims of Christianity about Jesus, are event-based, not idea-based. Therefore, from the very beginning, we're confronted with the reality that this is something completely different. This is not just another religious claim in the same category as the religious claims from all other religions around the world. The claim of Christmas is that God came down to us in person, so all religion and spiritual philosophy is no longer necessary. We no longer have to wonder about the way to God. We no longer have to deliberate before the buffet of world religions struggling to seek one appealing to us. We no longer have to work to make ourselves presentable to God or clean ourselves up or prove ourselves worthy. The claims of Christmas are that something completely different is available to us. And because this claim is historical in nature, it demands a response. And and in a way, the whole New Testament is a record of human responses to Jesus. The Apostle John told us why he wrote, right? Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John wrote for the response that we would trust Christ, that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And that response, says John, will will bring new life. It will result in new life from God in Jesus. So claim and response. Sounds familiar, right? The, The basic cadence of the Christian life, revelation and response. How will we respond to the revelation of, of Christmas? That's, that's really the question. So if you think about it, uh, even the Christmas story itself, we, we sang of one of the responses this morning. It includes a couple categories of response. The Magi from afar who saw the star and uh, sought out Jesus, came to worship him. That's, that's one response. Of course, when they showed up, they went straight to the Roman appointed king of the Jews, King Herod, and said, hey, where's this new uh, king of the Jews that's been born? King Herod represents a completely different response to Jesus, right? We need to get rid of this guy. He's cramping our style. Uh, Because the claim of Jesus is historic, we are all responding in some way. Maybe like the Magi. Maybe like Herod. Maybe just kind of ignoring but that in and of itself is a response. Everyone is responding in some way. And as we work through this series, we're gonna hold that in mind. 
uh, we're going to hold this thought that, that we are called to respond to Jesus, to respond to the historic claims of the faith. And the response Jesus is looking for, of course, is our trust. And he promises life in that. So the Gospel of John, written that we might have faith in Jesus and life in his name. So we're going we're gonna to begin kind of halfway through John 1, kind of after the Christmas stories, and this series will take us all the way through the Gospel, and it'll take us all the way through the beginning of June. So we're just going to chip our way through the Gospel of John. Before we read the text, let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for appearing. Thank you for continuing to appear. Thank you for making your word alive and meaningful in our hearts by the power of your spirit. And we pray that you would do that again now, Lord, as we read the Bible. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The word of the Lord from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, beginning at verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John said and who had followed Jesus. And the first thing that Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. And finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. And then he added, 
Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Jana. You know, you heard it uh, in, in the reading there, the claim and response, the back and forth. I mean, the, the story starts with it, right? The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. That's John the Baptist with two of the disciples of John the Baptist. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And the person either listening to this gospel as it was read to them or reading the gospel now has in mind the story that came just before, which was that, that first story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, that's the claim. And it's quite a claim. Because anyone hearing John the Baptist would have heard this. Jesus is God's sacrificial lamb who will be offered as a sacrifice of atonement to take away the sin of the world. That's, that's the claim. It foreshadows the whole gospel. Really, it's kind of like a gospel in a, in a phrase that in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we'll see the culmination of God's saving purpose for the world, that we're saved by grace, not by uh, religious pedigree or accomplishment or anything like that. It's simply given to us. That's the claim. And the response in the text we just read, when the two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. They responded. They did something. They had been disciples of John the Baptist, but now they followed Jesus. This is an initial stage of following, right? It amounts to hearing the claim, understanding that the claim is something completely different from anything they've heard before and and a turning toward Jesus with an interest in learning more. So they begin to follow Jesus physically, it appears, and he pauses and turns and looks around and kind of asks, hey, what what do you want? And they responded with the question, Rabbi, where are you staying? Which, Which was code for, we're interested in learning more about you as a rabbi and we want, to, we want to see your way of life and we want to hear your teaching. And Jesus extends what, what is his first invitation in the Gospel of John, come and you will see. Come and, and you will see. Come and see. Meaning, you've turned toward me, now come with me and see what I'm talking about. You've made the initial turn, now take some steps, right? Come and see means come and check it out for yourself. In this case, the disciples, Jesus' first two disciples in the Gospel of John, are more like the Magi than King Herod, right? They saw something of interest in Jesus and and wanted to learn more, to explore, to seek him out, to, to figure this out. But sometimes the check it out for yourself bit happens for people who are more like King Herod than the Magi. An historical example would be the story of Sir William Ramsey. Dr. Ramsey was a PhD in archaeology from Oxford and an avowed atheist, and he kind of made a commitment to himself and to the archaeological world that he would disprove the book of Acts, and so disprove the Christian faith entirely. 
because he thought that archaeologically he could show that the Bible was not at all historically accurate. So to pursue this end, he moved to the Holy Land where he spent the next 25 years uh, in archaeological digs, researching and thinking about this. And after those 25 years, he stunned the entire critical world by declaring himself to be a Christian. Hmm. He explained that over his years of research, he had been incredibly impressed with the accuracy of Luke's writings. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and he wrote the book of Acts. In the end, he declared Luke to be, quote, exact, down to the most minute detail. So just to make it plain, this PhD in archaeology spent 25 years trying to prove that the historical claims of Jesus were not, in fact, historical, but in the end, was overwhelmed by the historical and archaeological evidence that the claims are indeed historical. He finally concluded, after all of this, that if the book of Acts was so precise historically and archaeologically, he had no reason to doubt Luke's accounts of the resurrection of Jesus. So over those 25 years of excavation, Dr. Ramsey was, in a backwards kind of way, accepting Jesus' invitation to come and see. Just check it out for yourself, Jesus says. Dr. Ramsey did. And he he realized, he saw that something completely different is available to us in Jesus. He, He awoke to the reality that the claims are historical in nature and as such demand a response. Come and see. Now to be precise, Jesus didn't say come and see. Jesus said come and you will see. Those are the actual words. And this wasn't just Jesus' first invitation in the Gospel of John. It was his first promise. Come and you will see. Clearly the invitation, come, meaning come to me, come, come to Jesus. It's an invitation from Jesus and to Jesus. It's not an invitation to a religion. It's an invitation to a person extended by that person. Now, Jesus said it very clearly, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And notice the way this plays out. A lot of sermons about this text kind of take this angle, but it's important to see this, that the first disciples of Jesus very quickly imitated Jesus in inviting people to Jesus. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon, and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. He said to his brother, come and see. You gotta check this out. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one who Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see said Philip. Check it out for yourself. And the invitation stands open today. Uh, Jesus is inviting us to himself, all of us, not just some of us. But these days, he's not standing right here doing that inviting himself, right? It has been passed along person to person from the time he was here. So, so these days, that invitation from Jesus to Jesus 
comes to us from other people. I mean, people who we know, most likely, and who in some way, hopefully in deep humility and graciousness, simply say, come check it out. I found something incredible here, and it has nothing to do with me. Come. That's the invitation. Then, then the promise, you will see. Come, and you will see. That's what happened with those first two disciples. That's what happened even with Dr. Ramsey. Through very different circumstances, they started checking out Jesus, and they were given new sight they saw new things. They saw what this is all about. They saw that the Magi were right and King Herod was wrong. They saw that Jesus is the king of the Jews. They saw that Jesus is worthy of our worship. Right? Come and you will see. But, but did Jesus have anything more specific in mind when he said, you will see? I mean, what, what exactly will we see? Well, it turns out he did have something specific in mind, and it starts with the story of Nathanael coming to faith. Nathanael came to faith because Jesus knew something about him that Jesus should not have been able to know. And Jesus told Nathanael he'd seen him sitting under this tree, and and the presumption is that Jesus wasn't there, so how did he know this? So, you know, some kind of divine revelation here. And, of course, that led Nathanael to make his great profession of faith, to Jesus, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Remember why the apostle John wrote, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God. So with Nathaniel, mission accomplished, that this is the point to come to that place. But in responding to Nathaniel, Jesus addresses the question of what we will see when we come to Jesus. Look, look what he said. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now look at that passage for a second. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. Those yous are all singular. Then the next sentence, you will see greater things than that. That you is plural. So Jesus makes a little pivot here. He says, Nathaniel, you believe because I told you I saw you under that fig tree. But you all will see greater things than that. You will all see greater things than that. And then he goes on to tell us what we'll see when we come to Jesus. And very interestingly, Jesus quotes Genesis chapter 28. Uh, Genesis 28 records the story of, of Jacob stopping for the night uh, during a trip, that, that place that would be named Bethel after this experience, he lay down to sleep and he had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, 
and the God of Isaac. So the, the picture in Jacob's dream, we think, we're speculating, was probably a pyramid. A- ancient peoples uh, back then built pyramids. Um, and, and by pyramid, you got to think less Egyptian pyramid and more Mayan temple. It was known as a ziggurat, a kind of a, a temple, a pyramid face with a stairway going right up the center to the little thing on top, you know, where they would offer sacrifices and such. That's likely the, the image that was in Jacob's mind. And, and like the Tower of Babel, all these ziggurats, these, these pyramids, represented humanity's best effort to bridge the gap between heaven and earth. The problem is, it never worked. Because we all know the gap isn't physical. I'll go so far as to claim, to throw it out there, the gap isn't even just spiritual. The gap is relational. See, if if you offend someone, you can't build a thing to fix it. And for that relationship to be made right, there needs to be reconciliation. I mean, you're largely dependent upon the other person to forgive you and choose not to remember the offense against you. Right? What Jesus is saying is that he is the one who will reconnect heaven and earth. He's the real ziggurat. He's the real deal. All of the copies built by humanity are fakes, but he will actually accomplish it. That's what the seeing angels descend and ascend on the Son of Man is all about. He will actually reconnect God and human beings. (laughs) Something completely different is available to us in Jesus. And specifically, Jesus is saying, come to me and you will see that I reconnect you to God. I don't just give you a religion. I restore a relationship. I mean, it's all summarized in in Romans 3. Romans has such great little passages. Um, One of the the most fantastic summaries of the gospel in, in the Bible. But now, apart from the law, apart from works-based doing, right, the righteousness of God, the right relationship, uh, perfectly untainted relational connectedness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness, this, this perfectly restored relationship is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile That means everybody everywhere, by the way, because it was just the Jews and then everybody else. So race, ethnicity, doesn't matter. It's for everybody. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, that Lamb of God, John the Baptist pointed out so long ago, through the shedding of his blood, He was actually offered as a lamb to be received by faith. I mean, Jesus came to reconnect human beings to God. Jesus is the world's only savior. It's kind of a baseline truth of of Christianity. God sent Jesus to save. Means we need to be saved. We're saved from something and to someone. And Jesus is the only one. And when we respond 
to, to these claims, the claims of Christ in faith by trusting that God is actually doing this for us in Christ, we get a whole new life and it's real. I have experienced this. Not a perfect life, not a perfect example, living example, right? But we get new life for real. We're made new people. We have life in Jesus' name. Because the claims of Jesus are historic in nature, we must respond. We must respond. We just can't take a pass like this is another religion on the, on the buffet of, of world religion options, right? Maybe you've gone to church your whole life, but your understanding of your relationship with God is, is based much more on what you're doing or failing to do to make yourself presentable to God. That is not Christianity. That's some witch's brew of religion that people have made up on their own, right? That's some kind of works-based religion. There's something completely different available to us in Jesus. Maybe in your heart of hearts, you don't really think you need to be saved. You don't think you're that bad. I'm not that bad. Don't really need a savior. I mean, that's just another version of works-based righteousness. Like, I, that I'm able to make myself good enough that I don't need this. And that, that has hideous consequences, actually. It drives you into one of two ditches on either side of, of the middle way. One is the ditch of just arrogance and pridefulness where you think, I, I really don't think I need this. And the ditch on the other side is, you know, being broken all the time because you, you can't do it. And you know that. And you, you bump into it again and again. And so it just, it just drives into a ditch. I mean, yeah, you might be able to make yourself a more spiritual person, but the problem isn't a lack of spirituality. The problem is a broken relationship with a person, with God, who is not just a religious idea. God the person. There's something completely different available to us in Jesus. Maybe you've never understood that the claims of Jesus are historical in nature, event-based. Literally, that when Christians talk about this, we're, we're claiming that these things happened on the timeline of history, like World War II or World War I or other, some other big historical event. And maybe you're, you're just now realizing that these claims are, are real. And you're interested in actually exploring them, checking them out. Please do that. It's a big part of my story. When I came to realize that the, the claim of the resurrection was historical in nature, my first question was, well, is there any evidence? And while there, not be, there might not be proof, there is tremendous evidence. There really is for any person who, who approaches it without prejudging it away. Who knows? Maybe you're like the ar archaeologist who's been trying to disprove Christianity for the last 25 years. I mean, he came to a point where, where I, I would love to have talked to him. Um, I, I wonder what the trigger was. I, I wonder if it was the experience of kind of intellectual honesty. I wonder if he came to this place where he, so much evidence was amassed on this side of supporting the accuracy of the book of Acts that he could no longer with intellectual honesty look at that and continue to ignore it. I mean, he came to a place where he couldn't deny the reality of the claims nor the accuracy of the history. Maybe you're in that place. There's no judgment. There is something completely different available to us in Jesus and it's good and our response is always to start with a humble asking God I think you're real 
I need help. Please forgive me. Please help me trust Christ. Please pour out your spirit on me and help me see. Now come and you will see. As we uh, close the service today, we're going to sing a song. And you, if you're a regular, you've probably experienced at the end of the message, we're trying to uh, plan in some response time. Not, not so much to what I've, I've said, but if you feel like you've heard the Lord speaking in some way, through the scripture, through some aspect of the sermon, just what are you going to do with that? I mean, how will you take that? Because again, the basic cadence of the Christian life is revelation and response. So we're, we're, we always want to be asking, how is the Lord getting my attention? And what's the Lord saying to me? And what am I going to do about it? Right? So, so do that as we sing this last song together. Uh, you can sing, you can remain silent during the song, whatever, whatever works for you. But let's, let's respond to the things that the Lord is giving us. And let's respond to Jesus in faith. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your goodness. You didn't only come in person. You didn't just appear. While you were here, you very actively showed us the way, and you are the way. You invited us to yourself. So God, wherever we have been wandering, uh, we want to turn back. Please align, align our hearts and our minds, our whole bodies and spirits with your revelation and help us uh, to not just initially turn to you and express interest, but take the next step and the next step and the next step in, in following you. Help us see what that is, Lord. Uh, we love you. Thank you for sending Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.